this evening we'll be looking at Luke's account of the crucifixion from Luke chapter 23. Now, before I get to the text, I want to take just a minute to talk about why uh, we're looking at it and how I'd like us to approach it this evening. First of all, uh, I know obviously through the, the course of the book that it was just a couple months ago that Dr. Rayburn preached on this text. Uh, so I should acknowledge off the bat that I have no intention of producing a sermon that I'd like to be compared to his. That would not be in my favor. But rather, I'd like to, to draw out what I think is a secondary theme in the text. Um, and I think I'll, I'll hopefully make clear why in just a moment. Um, you may or may not know, but today in some parts of the church is a minor holiday of sorts. It's a somewhat recent holiday in the church year that's, that's been uh, invented, but it's an interesting day nonetheless. For a portion of the church, the Sunday before Advent is recognized as Christ the King Sunday. Uh, it's a Sunday where some cho- churches choose to focus on the theme of Christ's kingship right before Advent, to look at his reign, at his rule, um, and to discuss those things. And at one point I was curious about this holiday, and I went uh, and looked in the lectionary, a book that has biblical texts that it suggests for various days of the church year. And I was curious what passages it recommended. And in, those, uh, in that book, there were sort of the usual suspects. There were discussions about Christ's reign, about his kingship, about his power. And then in the middle of all of those was this text, Luke 23, the account of the crucifixion. And it seemed odd to me until I went ahead and looked at the text and read through it and saw that the theme of kingship is shot throughout the text that the question is throughout the text of whether Christ really is the king of this world or not. So as we look at Luke 23, verses 33 through 43, I want us to to do two things. One is going to be looking for that theme of kingship. A second thing is, as we go through the narrative, um, to try to place yourself among the crowd. With all the things going on, there's the crowd that's looking on, that's trying to make out what is going on in this event. So as we read through that, please try to do those two things. With that said, let's read Luke 23, verses 33 through 43. And I would encourage you to listen carefully. This is God's word for us this evening. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, that is Jesus, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And, when, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Father, we pray that now as we come to your word, that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear it, for your glory, and for our good. Amen. Uh, One thing you may have heard um, is that when future pastors go to seminary, they often find themselves in jobs they did not expect to be in. Um, One case I know that we hear of here is often Dr. Rayburn's work uh, in a mortuary. 
For me, I ended up spending most of my time in seminary also working in an assisted living home. I worked with a population of people who were suffering from various stages of dementia um, and spent a good deal of time working there. It was not a job I had gone to St. Louis looking for, but it ended up being a job I was very thankful that God placed me in. I want to talk this evening about uh, one of the residents who I got to know in that time. Um, I'll call her Edith. She is a real person, but that's not her real name. Um, But Edith was a lifelong Christian. She was a faithful wife and a faithful mother. And by the time I knew Edith, she was suffering from dementia. It progressed um, and soon got to the point where she wasn't really able to talk much. Another effect of its progression was that she suffered from anxiety, and often her arms would be shaking, her hands would be grabbing at things. She also eventually wasn't able to walk. She spent most of her time, um, all of her time, really, either in a wheelchair or in bed. And as time went on even further, she started having trouble swallowing, uh, which led to trouble eating and drinking, and she was very thin. And on top of all of this, Edith also suffered from chronic pain. And so oftentimes when you saw her, her face would be in a grimace from a combination of pain and anxiety. At one point when I knew her, Edith had trouble keeping her head down. For some reason, we weren't sure why she was always looking up. And so it was starting to cause problems, more problems for her throat. And so some of the caregivers were brainstorming about why she might be doing that and how we could encourage her to keep her head down. Uh, One caregiver had the idea of bringing in a baseball cap that maybe blocking her view above would keep her looking forward. And so a couple days later, um, when I was at work, one of the caregivers brought in a baseball cap for her. Now, I didn't see the baseball cap at first. I was working. I was going about whatever task they had given me that day. And as I turned the corner... I walked into the dining room, and sitting there alone at a table was Edith. There she was in her chair, small and thin, her legs unable to walk, her mind unable to converse, and a pained grimace on her face. And on her head, there was a hat, a baseball cap, that read in large letters, God is good all the time. Now, I don't know why the caregiver gave her that particular baseball cap. I kind of suspect that she just had it and didn't really want it. But a look at the woman underneath the hat seemed to scream in that moment that the words on the hat were a lie. I, for one, couldn't really take it. After it was clear that it wasn't helping her at all to keep her head down, I took the baseball cap off of her. I put it away in her room. What the hat did was it brought out a tension that was already there. Edith was a lifelong Christian. She had trusted in Christ. She had striven to live faithfully. And now she was suffering terribly in her old age. Seeing her in that hat forced the issue. And that looking at her situation, it appeared that Christ was not the king of this world. What I want to talk about tonight, what I want to think about tonight is what I think is the reality that often as we go through life, as we look around ourselves, it often appears that Christ is not the king of this world. And I think Luke brings out that same issue in our text tonight. Here we see Jesus stripped and tortured and mocked, and it looks like he's not actually the king of this world. This text is significant for a day like Christ the King Sunday because it dares us to face the reality that often when we look around us, it's hard to believe that Christ is the king of this world. In this text, we see the entire world. We see Jews and Gentiles. We see the powerful and the powerless all gathered together, all united in a unique way to mock the very idea that Christ is king. I think we can get that sense at times in our own lives, whether it's family difficulties or financial struggles. It could be internal as we deal with struggles with sin or with depression or anxiety that will just not go away. 
We see it outside of ourselves as well. We see it in violence in our neighborhoods, injustice around the world. We see it in tragedy or illness that befalls someone that we love and that we know. Or we see it in a moment of suffering and pain right in front of us, like Edith. Our text and our lives, the story of Edith, all of them point to the fact that often it appears that Christ is not the king of this world. In response to that appearance, Luke gives us this text and he tells us that we must trust Christ as our king. Now, it might seem hard to see where that's coming from in this text or how Luke is going to get there, but I believe he does get there. And so let's let him lead us through that. I want to look at two things in our text tonight. The first is that it often appears that this world is defeating Christ. And the second is that in truth, it is Christ who's conquering this world. So we'll look at the first one now. We'll look at that it often appears that this world is defeating Christ. In our text this evening, we see Christ and he doesn't look like a king. We see him without honor. We see him without authority. We see him without power, or so it seems. Now, these are concepts, these three ideas that seem to overlap, but I would say there's also some distinctions about each of them. They each build higher levels of what it means to be a king. You see, power is the ability to get one's will done, one way or the other. Authority goes a step further than that. Authority is able to give a command, and it's obeyed without a threat. Honor goes one step further than that. Honor brings out a desire in people to serve the one who's honorable without even being asked to do so. Power can force, authority can command, and honor attracts service. But in the scene in our text, it appears at first as if Jesus has none of these things. So let's look at them in turn for just a moment. We see first that Jesus appears to be without honor. And we see this primarily in the mockery. Jesus is mocked and he's derided. Kings bring out respect, but Jesus here only seems to receive insults. We see him mocked by the Jewish rulers in verse 35. We see him mocked by the Roman rulers who set up the sign that read, this is the king of the Jews. And we see him mocked by the Roman soldiers as they insult him and offer him cheap sour wine. Even a criminal in our text, a man who's been condemned to death by his society, puts himself above Jesus by mocking him. Jesus appears to be without honor. Second, we see that Jesus appears to be without authority. He's arrested, he's beaten, he's stripped, he's sentenced to death. He doesn't seem to be in any position to command anyone to do anything. No one heeds his word. He appears to be without authority. And finally, we see Jesus without power. And we see this, I think, really in the content of the mockery in verses 35 to 39. Take a look at them again. It says, the ruler scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. In all sorts of different ways, all of the actors in this scene are saying the same thing. They're looking at Jesus and saying, okay, if you're the king, let's see your power. Let's see you make something happen. But so far in the text, it appears that nothing happened. Jesus appears to be without power. And so appearing to be without honor, without authority, and without power, Jesus' claim to be a king seems laughable. And Luke points us at that fact. He encourages us to look at it, to acknowledge what this scene looks like. Christ here, in this moment, appears to be vanquished at this point in the story. And so what are we supposed to do with that appearance? It was in um, 2003 uh, that the U.S. invaded Iraq. Um, 
Some of you may remember it. Um, I've learned that many of my uh, students in youth group don't remember it. Um, and I, I want to talk about one aspect of that. I don't want to talk about the politics of it. I don't want to talk about the philosophy behind those who had different views. I don't want to talk about Bush or Cheney or Obama. But I do want to talk about a man who's named Mohammed Saeed al-Sahaf. Al-Sahaf was the Iraqi information minister during the U.S. invasion. And Al-Sahaf became a little bit of a celebrity on the Internet during that invasion because while the U.S. was fairly successfully invading Iraq, taking both Baghdad and the major airport, Al-Sahaf was going out before the media and making public statements like these. He said, there are no American infidels in Baghdad. Never. He said, they're not even within 100 miles of Baghdad. They're not in any place. They hold no place in Iraq. This is an illusion. They are nowhere near the airport. They are lost in the desert. They cannot read a compass. I can say, and I am responsible for what I am saying, that they have started to commit suicide under the walls of Baghdad. We will encourage them to commit more suicides quickly. They are not in Baghdad. They are not in control of the airport. I tell you this. It is, an, it is a lie. They lie. It is a Hollywood movie. And finally, their infidels are committing suicide by the hundreds on the gates of Baghdad. Be assured, Baghdad is safe, protected. And, of course, those of us who were watching knew that Baghdad was not safe. It was not protected. It was falling at that very moment. The reason I bring that up is that what I want to point out is that in claiming that there was no real military threat from the U.S., al-Sahaf was not actually exhibiting faith in the Iraqi military. He was actually showing a lack of faith. If al-Sahaf truly believed in the power of the Iraqi military to ward off apparent defeat, he would have been ready to admit the size and the power and the competence of the U.S. military because he would have been confident that the Iraqi military could still defeat them. But he was not. And so instead he tried to minimize the power of the U.S. military. He tried to pretend that it wasn't a real threat. He tried to say that everything was okay. And many of us laughed at al-Sahaf on the Internet as this unfolded. But the reality is that I think... There are often times when we're not unlike al-Sahaf ourselves. In response to threats to the idea that Christ is king, when it looks in a moment like Christ has been defeated by this world, we too often try to minimize the pain and the brokenness rather than admit it. And we all do this in one way or another. So when the brokenness of the world seems to smack you in the face and seems to scream at you that Christ is not the king, how do you respond? When you're facing tragedy or loss, or the suffering of a loved one, family strain or financial difficulties, depression or sin, how do you respond to that? When you look at the news and you hear about abuse or brokenness in our neighborhoods or violence and injustice across the globe, how do you respond? Aren't we a little bit like al-Sahaf? We turn away from the facts or we sugarcoat it or we detach ourselves from reality. But Luke will not allow us to do that here. Luke, who's writing for people whom he hopes will trust in Christ as king, doesn't shy away from this scene in our text. But he tells it in all of its mockery. We might prefer to look away, but Luke grabs us by the shirt collar. He drags us into the scene to hear the words of mockery, to see Jesus on the cross, and to acknowledge that in this moment, for these people, it really does look like Christ has been defeated. He takes us among that scene and says, look what happened. For Luke, trusting in Christ as our king also means acknowledging the brokenness and the apparent power of this world that opposes him. Admitting that sometimes it really does look like this world has won. It really does look in the moment that Christ is defeated. And really what Luke brings us to is that it's only as we trust Christ that we can truly admit this. 
So how willingly will we look at the apparent defeat of Christ in this text? How willingly will we look at it in our own lives? And how do we avoid looking? You might be one of the upbeat optimists, someone who tries to stay on the bright side, who tries to be positive, who reminds people when something goes wrong that when God closes a door, he opens a window. That reminds them that things could be worse and that we have so much to be thankful for. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's a lot in those statements that are true. But my question is whether or not it's true. My question is, how do we use those sentiments? How do we use those statements? Are we using them to look away from what's in front of us? I think Luke here tells us to look. He tells us to see the ugliness of this world for what it is. Denying it is no more an act of faith in Christ's power than Al-Sahaf's proclamations were an act of faith in Iraq's power. Real trust lets itself see the tragedy and still trust Christ as king. You might not be one of the optimists. You might be, unfortunately, a little bit more like me and that you fall into more of the cynical camp. The camp that takes a look at brokenness and shrugs and says, well, what did you expect to happen when news of tragedies comes? The reality, though, is that in that camp, you're really doing the same thing. You're trivializing the brokenness by treating it as normal. But Luke here calls us to see it. He calls us to feel the impact of it. For you, it could be something different. You might look away or change the channel or think of something else. But I think we all have ways of acting like al-Sahaf. But God calls us to more. He calls us to see the world for what it is. To see the world as it is requires an act of faith. Too many non-Christians, and maybe you're one of them here tonight, but too many non-Christians are turned off from the Christian faith by Christians who minimize their sufferings because as Christians we're often tempted not to practice faith, but avoidance. But Luke here calls us to see. And what we see is that it often appears that this world is defeating Christ. Thankfully, very thankfully, Luke does not stop there. Neither in his gospel nor, I think, in his text does Luke stop at that point. That is not the whole substance that we have here. Because in this text, Luke also indicates for us that in reality, it is Christ who's conquering this world. In our text tonight, we get hints of it. But those hints point to something bigger. In our text tonight, we hear something off in the distance, but we don't yet see it. So I want to look first at those hints that we do get in this text and then look at the greater reality that those hints point to. It's first worth noting that as we went through and and looked at how Christ appears to be without honor, without authority, without power in our text, we also get hints that, in fact, Christ is honorable, that he is authoritative, that he is powerful, despite the more overt appearances. So let's look at those three things one more time. First, I think we do see that Christ is honorable in this text. Take a look at verse 41. It's amazing, but the truth needs to come from a condemned criminal. It's he who points out that Jesus has committed no crime here. It's he who points out that Jesus is worthy of honor. Now, we need to realize that if that's true, if Jesus has committed no crime, and he hasn't committed any crime, then every other actor in this scene, the Roman rulers, the Jewish rulers, the Roman soldiers, all of them are participating in a murder. Every actor in this scene is guilty of murder except for Jesus. Though they treat him as having no honor, Jesus is the only one here who's worthy of honor. He is, in fact, honorable. But beyond that, we also see that he's authoritative. In the midst of all of this, Jesus continues to petition God as his father, and he continues to intercede with him on behalf of others. If you take a look at verse 34, Jesus pleads the case for his murderers. 
He is still God's son. He can still make demands of his father because though few in the scene seem to see it, Jesus has more authority here than anyone else. When the Jewish or the Roman rulers speak, their soldiers act. But when Jesus speaks, God acts. Finally, we get a hint here at Jesus' power. We need to realize that Jesus continues to act as a king even on the cross. If you look at verses 42 and 43, we see that Jesus grants this criminal access to his kingdom. Jesus is still acting as Lord. He doesn't appear to be powerful in the scene, but in his statements we get a glimpse that he has power over death itself. He has power to grant access to God's kingdom. He has power to give eternal life. So we see in our text that Jesus is honorable. We see that he's authoritative. We see that he's powerful. But again, we have to admit that in this text, these are just hints of the reality that Christ is actually conquering the world, that he is, in fact, king. But amazingly, those hints were enough for one of the criminals, one of the criminals who was crucified with Jesus and casts his faith on him. That criminal saw this scene, and he trusted in Christ, and then he watched Christ die. And that was all he saw before closing his own eyes in death. We get even more than that. For us, these hints are all pointers to what will come next. That on the third day after his death, Christ will rise. And with that, with the resurrection, everything changes. With the resurrection, Christ's victory becomes clear. In the resurrection, we see clearly that it is Jesus who's conquering this world and not the other way around. In the resurrection, Jesus begins to make all things new. But I would suggest that the position of the criminal and the crowd in our text tonight might remain significant for us, because we do have something in common with them. In many ways, our positions are alike. While we know more about Jesus' work than they do, we still find ourselves in a similar place. As they received hints of Christ's future resurrection in the midst of his suffering, so we receive hints of Christ's future work to make all things new in the midst of the brokenness of this life. As they saw the apparent defeat of Christ on the cross, but were called to believe in his kingship and in his future resurrection, so we often see the apparent defeat of Christ in this world, but were called to believe in his kingship and his future renewal of all things. Like the criminal, we too must trust the promise of Christ and the hints of what is to come. And we too will likely close our eyes in death before seeing the substance of it. One of my uh, favorite movies is O Brother, Where Art Thou? If you uh, haven't seen it, I would recommend it, although I'm about to give you a huge spoiler, so I apologize. But it's been out for over a decade, so it's not really my fault. There's a... One scene towards the end of the movie that's particularly powerful. Um, the movie, uh, in the movie, there are three men, Everett, Delmar, and Pete, who have all broken out of prison. And they're trying to get to a valley to retrieve something of great value before that valley was flooded by a reworking of the waterways by the Public Works Department. And they're being chased all the while by a particularly ruthless man uh, and some of his followers. Now, at the end of the movie, Everett, Delmar, and Pete arrive in that valley that's going to be flooded, and they walk up to the house that they're looking for, and there they're met by a group of men with guns. And the group of men have already set up three nooses for Everett, Delmar, and Pete, and they've dug three graves for them. And they give them one last minute before the sentence of death that's hanging over their heads is carried out. And it appears in that moment that all is lost. But in that minute, they start to hear a rumbling. In the distance. Now, the rumbling doesn't seem to change anything at first. The three still prepare for their deaths. The men with the guns still appear to be in charge. But then the rumbling gets louder. 
and louder. And finally, it makes itself seen as a massive wall of water comes down the valley and sweeps all of them away. And the three men, Everett, Delmar, and Pete, are carried up to the surface, and the would-be executioners are dragged down to the bottom, conquered by the waters. And suddenly, everything is different. Everything is new. Suddenly, the situation is turned completely upside down. The crowd and the criminal in our story are a lot like Everett, Delmar, and Pete in that moment while they're waiting in O Brother, Where Art Thou? They can faintly make out a rumbling in the distance. And in those rumblings, Christ's victory is already sure. The deed that would save them was already accomplished. In a sense, the dam was already burst. But they did not yet see the act carried out to the end. Everything still looked the same, though the sounds of change and upheaval were beginning to be audible in the distance. And we too find ourselves in the same situation. We hear the rumblings of Christ's conquering work as king. We sense that something is off in the distance, but we do not yet see it. With our eyes, it often appears that nothing has changed. But with our ears, we know that the world will soon be turned upside down. And in fact, Christ at his return will do just that. He will implement his kingship and his rule will be clearly seen by all. It means that in the face of personal tragedy, which might seem to make no sense in this life, we can still know that one day all will be made right. It means that in our struggles with personal sin or brokenness, we can know that we will one day be made whole. It means that though brokenness may seem to rule our family or our workplace or our finances, Christ will one day bring peace. It means that when we see the death or the abuse of the innocent, we can cling to the reality that one day Christ will wipe away every tear from his people's eyes and he will make all things new and justice really will roll down like rivers. It means that in the midst of a broken and often incomprehensible world, we must trust Christ, that he is in fact the conquering king. Christ does not promise for us that the brokenness and death we face now will make sense to us in this life. But he does promise that he has and he is and he will conquer it. He does promise that all things will be made new. And when the brokenness and death of this life makes no sense, when it appears to be irredeemable, when by the view that we have now, it appears that Christ is not the king, then sometimes that distance roar and that future promise of the kingdom to come is all we have to hold on to. And we must trust him and cling to Christ that he is our conquering king. For many days after I saw her in the hat, I continued to go to work. I continued to see Edith. And in that time, Edith never got up and walked to me and greeted me when I saw her. She never said hello. She never asked me how my day was. She never smiled at me. She never seemed to know who I was, though I was there with her day after day. Day after day, it continued to look like this world had defeated Christ in her life, that he, in fact, was not king. But even there, there were rumblings. There was, of course, the fountainhead, which was the resurrection of Christ himself 2,000 years earlier. There was her lifelong faith in Christ. There were her family and various caregivers, myself included, who tried to care for her and comfort her, who tried to love her sacrificially, who acted, whether intentionally or unintentionally, as the hands and feet of Christ, bringing her comfort. But those things were just rumblings in the distance. Edith didn't get better. She continued to deteriorate over the following months, and eventually she closed her eyes in death. But there was something to those rumblings in her life. Because one day those distant rumblings will become a gushing burst of renewing transformation. One day the kingship of Christ will flood the entire earth and make all things new. And one day I'll see Edith again from a distance. 
and she'll see me. And for the first time, she'll recognize me. And I'll stand and I'll walk towards her, and I imagine that she'll stand up and walk towards me as well. And as we get closer, I'll see a smile spread across her face. And maybe we'll embrace in a hug, and maybe she'll laugh. And for the first time since I've known her, I'll know what her laugh sounds like. I imagine we may go for a walk, or we may share a meal, and talk about many things, not least of which would be our amazing king, who has made us both new. Faith in Christ, our king, does not mean closing our eyes to the brokenness or the horrors of this world. It doesn't mean trying to sugarcoat this world. But at the same time, it does mean that we proclaim that Christ has conquered this world, that he is its conquering king, and that he will make all things new. We do not see it today, but we can hear distant rumblings in his words. Let's pray. Christ, we do indeed thank you that you are a conquering king. We thank you that you are our king and that you will make all things new. Lord, we do not see it often day to day. Help us to trust your word and trust your promise that you are our king and that you will bring wholeness to all of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.